Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm, what am I? I'm a nutrition and exercise physiology professor, um, licensed nutritionist, former competitive bodybuilder. Yeah, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, strength coach. I run uh, Strength Guild and help people get more better. And this is Dr. John Mike. It's been a while coming at you live. It's Saturday, and um, I'm the one that's trying to get Lonnie Lowry back to stage ready. <laughs> oh, sure you are. That's not going to happen. <laughs> right. That's funny. Yeah, I'm also yeah, I'm also a professor and um, world championship hot dog eater. No, not not really. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you could probably make a run for it though. I don't know. Some of those little yeah. Asian guys can really eat hot dogs. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. All right. We are slurping coffee and trying to pull it together this morning. Everyone, we have an episode of Mail and news. There's just so much going on. It's one of those times where we have to wade through it, and it's sort of mid-semester, and there's all kinds of craziness happening. So um, that's what we have this week. So let's get into it. Um, I'll start with mail. Um, first, I wanted to give a shout-out to Chris. Chris was our first fall uh, donor. We haven't even officially kicked off our fall funds drive. Again, we're like public radio in that we are listener-supported. So significant contribution from chris uh many thanks buddy that's gonna help keep the lights on and sort of get us rolling we'll start rolling out an ad uh i got some audio from our most recent intern at least on my side uh so we'll have a fresh ad um from her let's move on to the next one uh jared has a question that i'm sure we've addressed before so let me toss this out, Phil, mostly to you, I guess. I know you're probably looking through our Facebook page here as well. But um, he says, I have a quick question about the use of smelling salts slash ammonia inhalants. <laughs> I travel for work, and I've seen them used in some of the powerlifting gyms as I swing around the country. I've never used them as wonder. It was wondering if there are long-term effects and about the general safety of it. I don't compete. Uh, but I do try to set PRs from time to time. However, I'm generally hesitant about inhaling something. I do use caffeine sometimes pre-workout. I figured I would get your take on it. Love this show. Never miss an episode. Thanks for what you do, Jared. All right, Phil. No, I think they're generally safe. I mean, I wouldn't use them. The only thing I would say is I wouldn't use them uh, as like a regular training aid. Um, I'm in the kind of the mindset of many of my other colleagues and stuff like that to where it's a uh, most of your lifts should be done under a normal circumstance, you know, to where you're not all hyped up and jacked up. Um, that way you have that to rely on when it's needed. You know? Yeah. I mean, like I know if I can hit a 650 squat, then under me conditions when I'm all hyped up, then I've got some more left in me. You know, let's say I have that extra 10%. But uh, I personally don't use them. I've tried, and I get up enough at an event and things like that, that all it does is make me not be able to see and which doesn't help me at all. So yeah. <laughs> it makes your eyes water and things like that. I was like, God, this sucks. I can't see anything. Now I'm trying to walk to the squat bar and I can hardly walk anyways. Cause I got wrapped around my knees and, uh, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of people that like them. So, I mean, I would say, give it a shot. You know, I probably wouldn't try it your first time under something you've never done before. Um, cause that could go wrong. Yeah. I uh, think he just yeah. wants to use them in the gym occasionally for PRs. Yeah, uh, and you know, I, I don't see anything wrong with it. I mean, sniff them all the time. Yep. But. I think it's got to be a novel stimulus, right? The whole point is this, like, central nervous system kick out of nowhere. In fact, yeah. we addressed this, I don't know how long ago. Maybe a listener can email us and, and tell us what episode. But we were looking at this, and I found some interesting studies on anything that's a novel, abrupt CNS stimulant, like even loud noise. Um, I was telling the story about I used to have an old strength coach at Kent State. He was a former uh, NFL pro, 
And he'd walk up behind me when I was doing Olympic lifts and he would go, boom. And I mean, he was a big dude and he would do it purposely when I wasn't expecting it. You know, I'd throw the bar through the ceiling. Never, I was, you know, not like I was much of an Olympic lifter, but um, it's that kind of thing. So I would think of it's novel. Let me ask you this though, Phil, how much do you think you get out of it? I mean, when you have, have you gotten anything? I know you said you don't really care for it, but is this good for I didn't get anything out of it. But Nothing. I know people who seem to. I mean, they, they really rely on it. So, but I mean. Like 20 pounds? Again, the, what do you think? Yeah, of? maybe. You know? Okay. I mean, I think it comes down to, with something like that, I think it's more of a, a placebo effect than anything. Oh. They hmm. turned into this habit of, this is what I do when I lift something heavy. And that's like with me. I will purposefully, like today, I'm going to go in. I'm going to squat. I'm going to work up to 600 pounds. My music choices will change at about 550. You know, and the volume will go up higher. I'm not going to crank on, yeah. You know, from from 135 up because then, like you said, it's not novel. Mm-hmm. You know, at at 550, 600, that's when the music's going to go up and the 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 the, the music's going to change because okay, now it's time. Yeah. You know, the rest of them are warm ups. So, mm-hmm. no, um, like so I'm going to look for that novel stimulus to help pick me up and get in the get in the zone. Yeah. So, what about you, Big John? Avery use uh, smelling salts. Uh, yes, actually quite a bit. I mean, not any time in the last, you know, year or so, but, um, I mean, typically for strongman stuff when I was competing, um, and I mean, I would definitely use them again for like super max lifts, just like Phil was saying. And, and, um, you know, even during, uh, practice, you know, for strongman stuff, I wouldn't use them like all the time. Typically I would use them like on heavy stones or like heavy logs, something that's like, you know, maybe like one or two or three reps. Mm. Um, that, that's, that's typically about it. I mean, and then definitely like in contest, uh, but you don't want to use them like for every event um, because typically the inhalants are good for just, you know, very quick, short, high, super intensity, you know, bouts. I mean, you don't want to do it like for um, like truck pool where you have to like do several tons, you know, tons and tons of reps or whatever it yeah. is. But they're very, very effective. I've, I've actually mentioned this in my um, sport nutrition class. There's a there's a there's a fair amount of research, you know, backing um, uh, ammonia inhalants or caps for like um you know, sports performance and, and um, strength bouts and stuff like that. Uh, but not nothing sustained, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm, you know, my training has always been bodybuilding oriented. I don't really see much of a use for it. Uh, you know, I mean, back when I used to try to squat heavy for me, I think I've tried them years and years ago, but honestly, I don't much remember. So, okay, uh, good stuff. Let's move on. Uh, our next one is from Chuck. He says, I'm forwarding this message to you uh, in case Rob's too busy right now. I'm just a fan, longtime listener, first-time writer, and very into strength and the ketogenic diet. So he says, please let me know if the um, ketogenic athlete guys, Brian and Danny, uh, whether they meet your criteria for guests on the show, because Chuck had uh, said something before. I just want to send a quick reply to Chuck. Um I don't really know one way or the other. We've just been so busy. I haven't gotten back around to this. We did have David Barr and Anthony Almada on, uh, which those guys are very much into keto diets and that sort of thing. But anyway, he, uh, he says, you know, the keto diet's a big trend right now. I'm interested in your thoughts on its staying power as a diet, as a way of life versus just a brief flash in the pan like so many others, like Atkins, et cetera. Thanks for reading my email. I know you, you're busy educating so many, Chuck. It was a nice email, and again, he's um, reaching out again. I will try to take a look at these guys, um, Brian and Danny, from their ketogenic podcast. I don't think, honestly, it's a flash in the pan. I think really low-carb diets are – they're studied by guys like Jeff Volick, you know, who did a lot of the early Atkins, lower-carb type stuff. Uh, I know they're not identical, Atkins and, and keto. Um, cyclic ketogenic diets have been around for ages as for bodybuilders to lose fat. Uh, Apparently, the guys who do this other podcast, he has some of their, like, um, personal characteristics. They look pretty strong, fairly big, you know, 220 power lifters, raw power lifters with nice, you know, like 400 bench, uh, 700 squat, or sorry, deadlift maybe. Anyway, I'll take a look. Uh, I, I could just give you the opinion right now. No, I don't think that's a flash in the pan. In fact, mm-hmm. Phil, right before we hit the record button, you were talking about super low carb was it ketogenic diets for mental health? Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree with you. I don't think it's going anywhere because I mean it. It hasn't. I think there's a lot of people that are uh, 
that are just getting on it. And it's like, because it's become really in the news again, but it wasn't gone. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people think, Oh, this brand new key to thing that just started like a year and a half ago. No, it's been around. No, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, there's a new study. Somebody posted on our, uh, well, it wasn't a study. It's kind of like an end of two, but still it, it, it leads you to hope there's more studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh it was at the International Society of Nutritional Psychiatric Research uh, Conference in Bethesda, Maryland. And one of do- the doctors from Harvard, Dr. Chris Palmer, a psychiatrist from Harvard, had two of his patients that had schizoaffective disorder, which is like schizophrenia, but worse. Uh, anyways, one female who was 31 years old, she decided to. But she had had tried 12 different medications and 23 bouts of electroshock therapy, and none of that helped. She decided to try a ketogenic diet in hopes of losing some weight. After four weeks, her delusions had resolved, and she'd lost 10 pounds. In four months' time, she'd lost 30 pounds, and her score on her clinical questionnaire, the PANS, which is a it ranks you from best to worst as far as these symptoms go, uh, dramatically increased from 107 to 70. Um, another man who was 33 years old, kind of the same deal, had been on numerous different medications, uh, lost 104 pounds, and his score went from 98 to 49, so he cut his score in half. Uh, he was able to move out of his father's home for the first time, begin dating, and started college courses. So That's really pretty um, amazing. Yeah, so it's things like that you hope it leads to. Let's try this on more people. <laughs> yeah. Because the whole NF2 thing is kind of not big enough but uh at least it puts some kindling in the fire for more mm-hmm. uh and for what it's worth when we had uh dave Barr and anthony almada on uh we also talked about supplemental ketosis as opposed to sort of a nutritional or metabolic version where you're eating very few carbs it's literally an attempt to get like beta hydroxybutyrate some of these other ketone bodies elevated in your bloodstream even when you're not depressing your intake of carbs which is a really weird and novel metabolic state to be in the human body doesn't usually experience uh ketones circulating in the bloodstream when you're not like semi-starved of something like carbohydrates so um there's a lot of practical implications ketogenic diets have been used forever for different um neurological disorders we'll just leave it at that Mm -hmm. uh so clinically there's some there's some backing to this too. And it's important to note, like Phil was saying, case studies, they're not cause and effect, but they do really suggest, hey, somebody take a look at this, right? Because yeah. some of these And I can tell you this from, from my standpoint as, you know, a strength athlete and dealing with many people that are higher up in strength athletics, most of the people I talk to will tell you when they are done competing, they will move to something, I wouldn't say ketogenic, but much lower carb for a more mm-hmm. lifestyle, healthy diet. Um, Okay. Not while they're competing, I, but right. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I've actually, um, I mean, I've, I've leaned. I'm down to. I'm down to like 280. Um, Wait. So, which is yeah, I know. I, I've, I've leaned down. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've leaned down. I mean, I, I, the only thing I've really done is just kind of um, like lower my lower my carb intake and just you know increase. You know, I mean, my protein intake has always been you know fairly high, but I've eaten a little bit more fat um, and. Which I mean, I feel good, but I can tell you, and I'm, and I'm sure you know Phil can attest to this. Um, your your gym performance, I mean, it, it does go down. Like your your lifts do go down. I mean, there's there's no there's no question. I mean, like I don't. I mean, I I feel good, and I'm probably the leanest I've ever been. But I don't. At the same time, like you don't overall like feel like super strong either. I mean, um, I mean, unless you're on like tons and tons of, you know, gear, but, um, I mean, that obviously that's a different conversation, but I mean, but it's, it's just like, something's got to give, I mean, you can't, unless you're on tons of gear, you can't be massive and, and lean and shit at the same time. But, you know, so it's just like, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't feel the need to be, you know, 295, like 300 pounds when I'm not, you know, competing. Cause it's just more weight. You got to carry on. It's more conditioning. It's, mm-hmm. you got to eat more. You got to do all kinds of other shit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can tell just, you this. Yeah. I don't, I don't know anybody I'd trust that would tell you that a ketogenic diet is the best thing for a strength athlete. Yeah, I've never heard that from anybody you know, I've, that I trust or anybody. I've never seen a world-class strength athlete that is on 
constantly running. A keto That's diet. why I think it would. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be interesting to talk to the, those keto podcast guys because one of them is an accomplished powerlifter. But you know, we've talked about this in the literature too, and Mike Nelson agrees, and John, I know you agree. Because of the way metabolic pathways work, you know, energy systems work, it's just really hard to kick out real high effort, sustained anaerobic performance mm -hmm. uh, when you're running on fat. You know, it's just yeah, really yeah. hard to do that. And you're like your oh, I mean, perceived exertion just goes up way high. Like everything feels harder, stuff like that. And I would say again, I don't, I'm not saying you can't be good. You know, I could go to low carb right now and still be a pretty damn good power lifter. But I don't. I couldn't do what I want to do. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, there's a difference between world class and good. You know, yep. I mean, and I just mm -hmm. show me one that's that's like shockingly good. Uh, show me an Ed Cohen that's eating nothing but broccoli and steak. Yeah, and I right. yeah. <laughs> and olive oil so, or something. Yeah, yeah. So no, agreed. But I I like what you said. I think it's very goal oriented. Like I'm not after big lifts right now, and I'm on a much lower carb diet. I'm not ketogenic. Um, yeah. but God, I noticed just this past week, this is just serendipity, but for two days, I, I just randomly, uh, and after months of not doing it, I had a bunch of pasta, uh, granola, stuff like that. And I went into the gym. Now this is partly cause I took a few days off cause I had a virus and stuff, but, um, I just felt like I blew up like the fullness and the, your sense of energy and just the pump and everything. It really made a difference. Now I know a lot of the keto guys would say, no, you'll fat adapt well enough that you'll still return to that over time. I would argue probably not completely, mm -hmm. you know, but it, it is fun. It was fun because I don't need a lot of carbs. I think if anything, I pull more carbs. We just don't do much sugar and refined carbs in my family really at all anymore. But yeah. I'm sort of, you know, I'm pushing 50. I'm post competitive. Why would I eat a lot of carbs? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. no, and I agree. I mean, that's like me now. I mean, I am five weeks out from a meet. So uh, two weeks ago, I really started pushing the I'm going to eat anything diet. Uh, yeah. But the rest of my year is much, uh, I hate to use the word cleaner, I guess. It's a much more lower carb meats, vegetables, fruits yeah. type of diet than six weeks out. It's like I just can't eat crap <laughs> all the time now. Mm. But I can push yeah. that for I can push that for six, seven weeks. Okay, I've got this meat. Mm -hmm. I'll push it to that. And then right after, I'll go back down. You know, and honestly, for me, I think it's a better place to be. I mean, I've done both. I've the hell I've recently cut for meat. I can guarantee you this: I would rather eat up for a meat than cut down for one. Oh, um, absolutely. There's no. Yeah. There's no <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know it's like okay, I'm hitting this right now. I'm going to start eating. I it's going to feel better. I'm going to do nothing but feel stronger. Yep. As I get closer to the meat, because I'm cramming food in. It's like you know, I got to gain 20 pounds in the next seven weeks. So let's do this. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. So. Even uh, even in bodybuilding, um, let's face it. I mean, cyclic ketogenic diets—they're almost the standard, I think, for a lot of bodybuilders, or a, a tapering over time. But um, I always had the most fun and the best results where I would try to get to my weight class three weeks before an event, and then I even I would. Now it's not like what a powerlifter might do, but eat up to the event, right? Because you fill out, you just. You look great because how many bodybuilders, they compete in this super depleted state. And then the week after the competition, they look ridiculously amazing in the gym because they started eating again. You know, so I think even in bodybuilding, eating up to a meat on some level is an interesting concept. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird because like I know I've leaned down and then, then there's it's like it's gotten to a point to where when I go to the gym, it's since I've leaned down. Well, then when I go to the gym, like my uh, meal before. Before I go go train, it seems like it's. I mean, yes, I always increase carbohydrates, you know, you know, pre-training and stuff. And then, like when I'm done with the training session that night, I won't eat, you know, as, as many carbs. I mean, and I and I carb cycle and stuff, but um, it's just weird how like then sometimes I feel like I'm not eating enough. And then when I start eating a little bit more, it's like then I start having continuous. Um, or consistently good like training sessions like back to back to back to back. So it's just yeah. it's it's amazing how just changing one small variable makes like the biggest difference. Right on. Okay, we are pushing mid show already. So let's just go ahead and go to break. Uh, we have a bunch of more stuff here. So when we come back, for those of you who want to keep tuning in, we've got some stuff uh, along these same lines about continuously measuring your blood glucose. There's a neat new monitor coming out. We've got some 
uh, evidence, a study on Wim Hof, that method that we were talking about last week, uh, and a bunch of stuff about things that can either enhance or decrease the effectiveness of your coffee and caffeine. So that plus some stuff from our Facebook page, and we'll be back in a little bit. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hey everybody, we are back, and I've got one from the uh, Iron Radio Facebook picture from Deshaun. He had a question that I thought was kind of interesting. It's, can anybody direct me to some popular studies that correlate increase in muscle mass as a result of lifting weights with improved health and longevity? He says he can find plenty of studies out there that show how strength extends life expectancy, but I can't find anything that deals with muscle mass itself. How does having more muscle equal longer life? No, we talked about this during the break just briefly, but I think Lonnie kind of points the first thing out is, you know, when you look at people later in life, one of the first things you notice is a drastic decrease in muscle mass. Yeah. Therefore, on the opposite end of that, an increase in muscle mass or an extra amount of it in those years prior to it losing would probably be a good thing to have. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, you're starting off with more. So basically you have more to lose. So let's say by the age of 50 or 60, you have lost the same amount, but your net amount you still have is greater than the average 50 or 60 year old. Cause you started with much more. Um, one would think that would be a good thing. Yeah. Um, I would think metabolically so. I can tell you, I mean, uh, muscle mass is supposed to be the healthy recipient of like 70% of the carbohydrates you consume. So if you have more muscle mass, you have a better gas tank, if you will, to deposit glucose, you know, from your blood and that sort of stuff. Muscular activity helps control blood sugar, uh, just all kinds of stuff. I mean, guys who are lifters, uh, I've seen research, and again, I can't quote this, I don't have it in front of me, but that even guys that are former strength athletes, they have about 10% denser bones, partly from the years that they were training, but I think when you have a lot of muscle mass, those tendons are still tugging on the bone, providing stimulus, right? So you've got blood sugar benefits, you've got metabolic rate benefits, a big driver of your metabolic rate, of course, is muscle mass. 
Uh, you've got skeletal benefits. Um, and I do know uh, from, I'm sure there are many studies on this, but that the number one reason people actually enter long-term dependent care, it's not because of some cardiovascular event or neurological thing, but the number one reason is just a loss of muscle strength. They can't do the activities of daily living in sort of what you're saying, Phil, when you have a lot of muscle mass, um, and especially if you continue to resistance train. I, I don't know if it was Jeff Volick, um, but we did an episode and we actually talked about this research uh, long ago now, but uh, there's something like a fourfold slowing of muscle loss as you age, that sarcopenia of aging. So resistance training is just, it's just huge on, on so many levels, metabolic, you know, um, musculoskeletal, uh, all of the above. So, yeah, I, well, that's what yeah. I was going to get into is just quality of life, being able yeah. in your 70s and 80s. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. And that's like you said, I mean, that's the number one thing that sends people into, you know, uh, the home because yep. they they just aren't able to lift themselves or lift things or move things. And just having that muscle mass is going to make you able. I think on the other side of the token is there's uh, there's an amount of muscle you know you can't expect to be 350 pounds of uh, of of big muscle or anything as you age good call um yeah. and that's where people kind of it goes out the window and i talk to people about this all the time i mean being 300 pounds of anything at a point is not good for you <laughs> mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's it's still a strain so at some age you're going to have to come back down to you know something more in the realms of average i would i hate I hate to use that word. But, yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, because it is going to be a strain on your heart and all the other systems of your body. But uh, yeah, you know, John, what do you think? Uh, in terms of like aging and muscle mass, and yeah, all that the import stuff? importance of muscle mass and health as you age. Oh, I think I think maintaining physical strength is probably one of the most important things that you could do in terms of, I mean, aging because it's just like every physiological system like known to mankind, like everything goes down. You know, I mean, like, I mean, everything, all, I mean, blood flow, muscle mass, I mean, your ability to think, I mean, it's just, everything really goes down. So it's just, you know, trying to maintain as much physical strength as possible. And it's, it's even more important, obviously for females, but, um, I mean, I think if you, if you look at a lot of the strongest people like in the world, I mean, they're all like in their thirties, mid thirties or like early forties, you know, it just takes, it takes so long to really gain, um, high levels of strength, you know, and, and, and a competitive, you know, edge, obviously depending on the sport and, you know, what you do in terms of your lifestyle kind of, you know, throughout that time. But, um, I mean, if you, if you look at like old score log Bill Pearl, yes. you know, like, I mean, bef before, like, before, like, you know, during like the really early Arnold days, I mean, it's like Bill Pearl's like, he's gotta be like pushing 90 right now. He's probably still deadlifting like 300 pounds, you know, or 250 or whatever it is, you know? So it's just, um, I mean, but you also have to think in terms of like longevity, you know, um, I mean, there's, I mean, they would, they would probably get to the point to where, um, I mean, even when I'm 40 plus, I would, I would still be competing like in masters, you know, for sure. Oh yeah. Um, mm -hmm. so I mean, I just had an injury like two weeks ago, like I just pulled my triceps. So in this, like, it just sucks. It's just like, it's cause you can't, you got to work around crap. It's like, you know, it's, but you know, it's, it's one of those things that you just have to you know, work around and, you know, maintaining strength as possible as you get older is, is, is pretty damn important. Yeah. We had Kelly, my wife on, um, episodes ago and she was talking, the one tough thing is to, I think to your point, partly Phil is you can't walk around like in shape at 250, you know, when you're in, let's say your sixties, seventies and beyond or whatever. It, so there is a psychological adjustment, like you're not walking around like the superhero that maybe you were in your 30s and 40s, but you're still incredibly youthful, at least in your function, you know, compared to the, the other dads up and down the block or moms, for sure, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, look at even, I mean, being in the Midwest here, I can I can tell you which 50 and 60 year olds have desk jobs and which have been farmers their whole life. Yes. <laughs> yes. Know, or even 70 year olds, you know, and you'll see these old farmers are still very able. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll see some of them living their eighties and nineties and beyond and still doing things right. in comparative much greater than their sedentary counterparts. Right. So, okay. yeah. So I guess the long story short, I, we can't tell you, um, 
Facebook dude, that you're going to live long, X number of years longer, but yeah. functional lifespan, forget it. I don't think it's even up for debate. You yes. Know? So, I mean, and just quality of life. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, here are some other ones that I promised before the break. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Uh, David, one of our longtime listeners, he's a PharmD. Uh, he sent me a very cool piece of news from EMPR.com about a new continuous glucose monitoring device. And I am very interested in this. I've probably fussed about this on air before. But when these Fitbits and everything, when they can start doing continuous blood sugar measurements, um, then I'm going to buy in. I'm, I'm not going to buy in yet. Uh, steps per day or number of flights of stairs, whatever. But but when it comes to metabolic things, then I'm going to start getting very interested. And there's a lot of microcircuitry happening, inventions happening that are going to enable this. But this one is, I mean, this is literally one day old. New glucose sensing device eliminates the need for routine finger sticks. The Food and Drug Administration has approved the Freestyle Libre Flash Glucose Monitoring System, a continuous glucose monitoring device, or CGM device, um, for managing diabetes. But of course, we're interested whether you're on a keto diet or you're just looking at, uh, like I'm interested in using this in research because I'm tracking people's caffeine intake, energy drinks and coffee and whatnot, and I want to see what that does to blood sugar because acutely that will raise your blood sugar a little bit, um, but chronically coffee can help reduce blood sugar, manage it better. So I'm very interested in, in doing this as part of research as well, but also personally, according to Donald St. Pierre from the FDA's Center for Devices, etc. cetera, uh, that's not really what it's called, et cetera, this system allows people with diabetes to avoid the additional step of finger stick calibration, which can sometimes be painful, but still provides necessary information for treating their diabetes with a wave of a mobile reader. So apparently what it, what it does, there's a video, maybe I can post this on our Facebook page, but you stick this thing to the back of your upper arm, uh, and it can, it's water resistant and can even uh, be left on for bathing and swimming. That's very interesting to me. Because uh, some of the athletes I work with are swimmers, but you wave a wand over the top of it, and it sends a little continuous line graph sort of to your uh, cell phone, and you can see what your blood sugar is like. So you can kind of see what what your blood sugar does it spike at breakfast, or you know what's it like before, during, and after your lifts, that kind of stuff. So uh, no more finger prick going on. I'm not sure about the cost of the device. I haven't dug that deep, but I will let people know because I'm going to contact a sales rep. So um, David's a bright guy, on the ball with this kind of stuff, actually being a PharmD. So thank you, dude. I'm very interested in that. And like I said, I'm itching for some of this technology to be incorporated into some of the watches and other things. Uh, years ago, I had something called a Gluco watch. Uh, hopefully these new things are less irritating to your skin. I got to think they they somehow look at interstitial fluid uh, th through your the epidermis and dermis of your skin. But I'm not sure exactly how they get their sample. Maybe it's done somehow with a some kind of photo sensor or something like that. I'm not sure. But this looks very interesting. FDA approved. So I'm thinking it works. Um, cool stuff if you're interested in looking at your blood sugar because of your, you're manipulating carbs in your diet or... Or you're diabetic, too, right? So, cool stuff. All right, next. This is re related to the Wim Hof discussion we had just last week. Uh, one of my students is very interested in this, so he sent me this, and it sort of supports what we were discussing. The title here is Voluntary Activation of the Sympathetic Nervous System and Attenuation of the Innate Immune Response in Humans. This is by Cox, K-O-X, and colleagues. This is not a brand new paper, but it's directly related to last week. So this is actually from uh, May 2014. But let me just offer some evidence then. And again, I'm not trying to push the Wim Hof method. It's just interesting. But excessive or persistent pro-inflammatory cytokine production plays a central role in autoimmune disease. Acute activation of the sympathetic nervous system which we've been talking about already this episode with different things, caffeine, pre-workouts, loud noise, uh, inhalants. Anyway, uh, 
acute activation of the sympathetic nervous system attenuates the innate immune response. Herein, we evaluate the effects of a training program on the autonomic nervous system. So it says the intervention group were trained for 10 days in third eye meditation breathing techniques, which is they describe as cyclic hyperventilation followed by breath retention and exposure to cold. So again, uh, uh, per last week, that's sort of the Wim Hof method. Um, in the intervention group, plasma levels of the anti-inflammatory cytokine IL-10, interleukin-10, increased more rapidly uh, after they, they literally infected these guys with E. coli. Uh, anyway, and it correlated strongly with the preceding epinephrine levels. Uh, it says levels of pro-inflammatory mediators like tumor necrosis alpha or interleukin-6 were lower in the intervention group. So it says finally flu-like symptoms were lower in the intervention group as well. So interesting study. This is not going to happen at my university. They're not going to let me infect people with anything. Um, but this was done in a controlled way. And yeah, they had less of a, well, let's say a flu-like response after just 10 days of this combination of breathing techniques, cold exposure, you know, the, the various aspects of Wim Hof. So interesting stuff. Yeah, the, apparently you can, in fact, affect through this sympathetic nervous system stimulation, your um, inflammatory response, your flu-like response. Wow. Okay. Well, again, that's one paper. I think there are probably more out there. But interesting, a little evidence there for everybody uh, to support some of what was being discussed uh, last week. This is, you can look, look at this further at pnas.org. All right, the last thing I have today is things that affect caffeine in your body. This might surprise people. This came up in a lit review because I mentioned earlier we're doing some research this fall. We're just basically doing different types of Fitbit and physical activity records, and we're going to compare them with diet records. I'm very interested to see if different dietary stimulants affect how many steps a day you take or during the training session. Like if we track your movements, do you move around more? You know, that sort of thing. So we need to control for other things that might either extend or decrease the effect of caffeine in the body. And there's some weird stuff. These are some papers from the early 90s. So it's not new, but it's specific to what I'm looking at right now, which is new. So let me share this. This first one says cytochrome P450 in man measured by caffeine metabolism, the effect of smoking, broccoli, and exercise. So if you're not familiar, the cytochrome P450 system it's responsible for the breakdown of caffeine in your body, along with other uh, things, meds, etc. So they gave people at least a cup of coffee two to six hours before they took some spot urine samples. And this is the things they looked at. They looked at 335 healthy male and female volunteers who provided some information on tobacco use, caffeine use, and broccoli intake in the preceding two weeks. They also looked at 23 healthy men who exercised, I'm not kidding, eight hours a day for 30 days. I'm not sure how they did that. I'd have to go back and look. Uh, and nine subjects whose diet included a lot of green beans and broccoli. So the bottom line here, 30 days of vigorous physical exercise increased this enzyme activity. In other words, your breakdown of caffeine um, by 50%. 50 to 100%. So vigorous physical activity, increasing caffeine breakdown in the body. Broccoli induced a 19% increase in this enzyme activity. Again, 19%, if you will, breaking down of the caffeine. Uh, and then interestingly, pregnancy and oral contraceptives for our female listeners uh, reduced this enzyme activity by 20 to 29%. So... Imagine that, that if you're on birth control, and we need to specifically ask people about this because sometimes they forget when they report what meds they're on, um, 20 to 29% decrease in this enzyme activity. So t you, again, you could extrapolate a 20 to 29% decrease in caffeine breakdown. So oral contraceptives enhancing caffeine's effect in the body. So let me sum this up again. Things like exercise, 
smoking or broccoli will decrease caffeine in the body, but sex hormones increase the effect of caffeine in the body. So that's by Vistaisen et al. Uh, Advances Experimental Med Bio 1991. So it's an older paper, but it really struck me because I had actually read before years ago that broccoli, which of course is something the bodybuilders live on before uh, an event when they're on a low carb diet, etc., high protein, whatnot, um, increased drug metabolism, drug clearance from the body. And here it is. Here it is again. So kind of odd, but interesting. And then there's a follow-up paper, Influence of Oral Contraceptives on Drug Therapy. So it says, uh, interferences between drugs and oral contraceptives are considered to alter the movement of drugs through the body and the efficacy of steroid hormones. So they also talk about steroids can also modify the metabolism and the pharmacodynamic effects, right, the movement of the drug through the body, of various substances. Drugs sharing these enzymatic systems with oral contraceptives, for example, experience either an increase or a decrease in bioavailability or inhibition of these different enzymes or activation of these different enzymes may be of practical interest to subjects who take oral steroids, again, like contraceptives, and are simultaneously treated with things like caffeine, theophylline, uh, and whatnot. Now, they also talk about antihypertensives and antidepressants. So, again, sex steroids, and let's face it, in our listenership, this may not just be oral contraceptives, right? These could be people that are using androgens, uh, are going to affect the metabolism of, of other meds. This, this suggests to me, actually, that uh, guys who are using testosterone or different anabolics are probably more sensitive to caffeine in a lot of ways. Anyway, it says, since many drugs share these catabolic pathways, their uh, metabolism essentially will be affected by oral contraceptive uh, steroid meds. Notable interactions include an increased bioavailability even of analgesics. Well, that's interesting, right? So something like aspirin or ibuprofen. So, and then toward the bottom here, relative to what I'm looking at this fall, two common non-prescription drugs, theophylline and caffeine, show decreased clearance rates due to oral contraceptive use. Uh, and then this also makes a comment about cigarette smoking, increasing these enzymes and increasing the clearance of theophylline and caffeine. So weird stuff uh, that affects your ability to maximize your stimulant intake. I guess. So, I got a bit of an old one here, but it's a few weeks old. But I don't think we mentioned it on the show. Uh, all the drug tests that have been going on and the back testing with the Olympics and things like that. Um, the IWF announced that they are looking at potentially banning nine countries from the coming up worlds. Uh, oh. Russia, Kazakhstan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus... Moldova, Ukraine, Turkey, and China. Um, both Russia and Kazakhstan have 10 positive tests. So, uh, yeah, it's getting pretty big. Um, and you start knocking out big heavy hitters like Russia and China, mm -hmm. and uh, we have a chance. <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> true. <laughs> um, but, no, I mean, it's pretty interesting. And the, all the reports i've seen is like idwf was giving a uh, a pretty big big smack on the wrist from the olympic committee saying that like this next games is your last shot uh and if you can't get your stuff straight then you might be gone so I, this is did you say wada or who's behind this it's idwf international oh. weightlifting federation oh, okay okay so and yeah wada's doing the testing but uh you know the, the olympic committee is told from everything i know the International Olympic Committee is kind of uh, on weightlifting's tail, telling them you need to get this figured out because there's way too many, way too many pops coming on. I have a feeling, and I think you probably do, you guys do too. In a modern world of technology, if they continue with an incredibly hardline stance with this many people, like it's not going away, and I think they're going to erase half the Olympics. Yep. You know, if they, they if are. they go with, again with a super hard line, zero tolerance kind of thing, I don't know. Yeah, and the problem is, 
is it's going to continue doing what it's going to do. If they're doing these eight-year back tests, people are going to pass, and then eight years later, they're going to be stripping things. And it's going to—it's not going to stop. That's what I'm saying. It's <laughs> going to—it's going to destroy, yeah. Yeah. like, uh, all of modern athletics if they're not careful. If they—if they do yes. this badly, I don't know. So, and it's yeah, it's—I uh, think they're taking a, a very bad stance. But <laughs> wow. So. Well, caffeine will be enhanced in those people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's a very controversial topic. And, you know, since we started this podcast, obviously we don't – we're not going to judge, you know, uh, like morally judge people who listen who use one thing or another. And, you know, the, a lot of this stuff is – aside from the obvious legalities is a personal choice and that kind of thing. And some people do it more stupidly than others and, and that kind of thing. But I don't know. It, it just sounds to me like when you talk about this number of people getting popped and stuff, you're just – it's not just going to be the weight sports. It's cycling and so many other things. Oh, yeah. What are we going to do? You know, how are we going to progress like this? I, I yeah. don't know. I don't know. I think if they stupidly opened a can of worms that they didn't want to, and now they have no clue how to back out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And they're like, I think they're they're in a tough spot. You know, this has been a theme this whole year. Like 2017, we've been you seem to have repeated updates, you know, that there are, mm-hmm. again, it, it, huge numbers of people getting popped and they're going back in time. And it's just this yeah. ongoing thing. Sadly, and, sadly, the only thing I can think of is somebody behind the scenes, a higher up was thinking like, Oh, let's go back and do this. We'll catch two or three people. And then it started coming through and they've caught like hundreds. Right. And it's like, Oops, Oh shit. Shit. <laughs> maybe yeah. we shouldn't have done that. Yeah. You yeah. know, they were thinking maybe we'll strip one or two medals and now they're stripping them all. You know, and it's like, this is not good. So, Unfortunately, I think with the focus on the lifters, you know, because bodybuilding and strength sports have always been the poster child for, like, androgen abuse and drug abuse, performance-enhancing meds. But with all the stuff in cycling, too, yeah, Yeah. I don't know where we're going to go with this. You know, and, I mean, anybody is naive, and I think we all agree. If you don't think baseball, football, you know, you you think there are are no performance-enhancing meds and those guys are just genetic anomalies. Oh, uh, no, please. There's, there's, there's. We're, I, we are uh, talking about ergogenic aids and stuff like in my sport nutrition class, and like it's just amazing how so many people. And I'm just not really talking about just like anabolics, but it's just in general. Like so many, so many people are just amazed how so many sports and athletes are just on anything and everything, especially at the higher levels. And it's just like even sports that you don't even probably wouldn't even think of, like tennis, you know, or like soccer or whatever it may be. It's just like everybody is just. It's like I'm not gonna say it's a I'm not gonna certainly not gonna say it's a way of life, but it's just there's so many people that are doing that you wouldn't even think that that they are. Um, but yeah, and um, it's just you can't, you know, when you play long seasons and long games. I mean, you have to be able to maintain a certain amount of like you know intensity and sports skill and just the recovery aspect alone is is uh, can kill you. <laughs> oh yeah, and you know yeah. I, I mentioned this years ago, but when my son was younger, we wa- we were watching the news and. They, they, they were the journalists were actually saying such and such was using I think it was a pitcher uh, had used uh, testosterone replacement therapy to continue competing well into his 40s and my son was very young at the time and he looked at me and said dad what's wrong with that like he yeah. honestly like I don't understand that sounds good he gets to recover and keep competing and I, mm-hmm. I, I, I paused for a minute because that's a chewy subject right and so <laughs> so I'm like well some people think that that's unnatural uh but then other people would argue what natural really means or you know and it has a lot to do with the intent you know when you think about the ethics of it and that kind of thing but yeah i mean i i was sort of quietly agreeing with the boy right that yeah yeah, i don't see anything wrong with it the guy's on some kind of androgel or something so he can recover and continue pitching which is what he loves and he's one of the best in the world um should he be banned from doing that Uh, you know i it's very sticky, and like I said, it's. I don't. I'm very curious to see what this is going to do to sport. You know, the the philosophy and the sociology of sport. So, and they keep pushing, like you said, Phil. And they they can't backpedal their way out. So, yeah. drawing lines in the sand. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's a show. That's plenty of yeah. uh, mail and news. So. Sounds good, guys. All right. Well, sure. Until next right. week. Thanks for doing this. Thanks.
Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.